COVID-19. Weekly Digest. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty and over the next hour we'll look back at the week that was in the world of COVID-19. It's Friday night and I'm here in the Department of Health where we've just had our latest briefing with the Chief Medical Officer. Sadly, a further 16 people with COVID-19 have died, bringing the death toll to 1,518. There have also been an additional 129 confirmed cases, bringing the total to just under 24,000. Much of the focus this week has been on whether the country is ready to gradually reopen, beginning with phase one of lifting of some of the COVID restrictions from next Monday. The government has confirmed enough progress has been made to start lifting some of the minor restrictions, but people are still being urged to stay at home. The Taoiseach has updated the country on what the exceptions now are. So the message today is to stay at home, except for these five rules, and I count them. One, to go to work if your workplace is open and if you can't work from home. Two, to shop for items that you need. Three, to exercise within five kilometers of your home. Four, for medical reasons or to care for others. And five, to meet friends or family outdoors in groups of no more than four. As I mentioned from Monday, we'll be able to meet small groups of up to four people outside while keeping at least two meters apart. Some people mainly in outdoor work, will be able to start working again. For example, construction workers, gardeners and people tending to allotments. Some more stores will reopen and you'll be able to shop again in garden centres, hardware stores and farmers markets or get your eyes tested or your car or motorbike or bicycle repaired. For those who do leave their homes, they're now being encouraged to wear face coverings in places like on busy public transport and in enclosed indoor public areas, as Health Minister Simon Harris explains. On the face mask issue, so we will, as the Taoiseach said, be putting up some videos and guidance as to how you can actually make your own. We're very eager that people don't criticise or judge people who are not able to wear a face covering. Uh, This won't won't be uh, for everybody uh, for a variety of reasons. People could have allergies. Uh, people with autism or other conditions could have sense, uh, sensitivity issues in terms of wearing a covering on their face. We also aren't recommending in the guidance that anyone under the age of 13 um, wear one either. So um, all of this guidance will go up on the uh, department's website and, and useful videos and you can try it making your own as well. And there is a very clear difference between the face covering uh, and, and the face mask. From Monday, outdoor workers in construction and gardeners can return to work. Homeware shops cannot reopen next week, but hardware stores can. Business Minister Heather Humphreys outlines the subtle difference. If you have a a hardware shop and they happen to have uh, maybe a small uh, homeware section, uh, they're allowed to sell. Okay, But if you are a homeware shop and that's your main um, uh, line of business, you can't open. Elsewhere, at Friday evening's COVID-19 briefing at the Department of Health, it emerged seven children here have been investigated for a new rare inflammatory condition which is thought to be linked to coronavirus. Doctors are now being warned to be alert for so-called PIMS in young people after 230 suspected cases of the syndrome across Europe. It can cause fever, high temperature and could lead to children being hospitalised and needing to be placed on ventilators in ICU. Dr Siobhan Levreen, HSE Integrated Care Lead, says it's typically small children who are affected by PIM syndrome. So these are very, these generally tend to be small children, except adolescent girls who can also get a syndrome called toxic shock. So really what you're looking at is a very, very sick child, high temperature, off colour, not right. Most parents know when their kids are sick. And if you're worried that your child is really ill and has a high temperature, get them seen. We think that this inflammatory illness associated with COVID is probably very rare. One of the big issues this week has been about delayed reporting of COVID-19 cases. The Matter Hospital in Dublin is at the centre of an investigation into why 244 cases of COVID-19 were only notified to the Department of Health for the first time on Thursday, when some dated as far back as March. It led to an unexpected jump in Thursday's daily COVID-19 cases, but the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Holhan, explained that a large number weren't new cases 
cases but had been reported by one hospital in a single block. But there was a twist when the Matter Hospital said it had reported all cases of positive results to the relevant authorities on a daily basis. It says it's working with the HSE to understand why information may not have been accurately captured. But then the HSE says it can't confirm whether the hospital did or didn't report the cases. I asked Dr Tony Holohan about the issue at Thursday night's health briefing. A very large number of cases built up uh, over a period of time in one location that weren't reported to us. That was something that we, we, we couldn't have known about from where we sit and they were all reported in one day. And the point I'm making is that, and I know you're, no one here is interpreting them as, as being part of a new wave of, of, of infection, but to really emphasise the point that these are, for the most part, cases spread over a very lengthy period of time that goes right back to, uh, to mid-March. Could there be other hospitals in the country which have... Uh, we don't believe so, but because this has arisen, we're going to take steps to ensure that that isn't the case. But that's not me saying I think that the vast majority of hospitals have taken the responsible and legally mandated uh, action to report these cases. This is all set out in the 1947 legislation, the notification of infectious diseases. This is one of those on the list, is what's provided for by both clinicians and laboratories diagnosing these infections, and there is an expectation uh, and an obligation in that legislation on people to make those notifications. Now, the issue of getting back to work featured quite heavily across the week here on News Talk. Caroline McHenry of the HR Suite joined Pat Kenny to outline some of the issues we must address as people return to offices around the country. I suppose the whole idea is to try and really heighten awareness for staff members to understand the importance of highlighting any issues that they might have been in contact with somebody who's had COVID-19, they might have symptoms, etc. So it's good practice, I suppose, all these things to heighten that awareness for both employees and employers. And that's one of those measures. Mm. All right. Now, they've got to have a business response plan to COVID-19. What does that involve? So I suppose that's basically doing a risk assessment, which is the first thing. And making sure that you do, I suppose, a customer journey and you do a staff journey to identify any potential risks in the business in terms of health and safety and spread of COVID-19 and do all you can that's reasonably practicable to reduce or eliminate that risk. So things mm-hmm. like um, the doors, things like the canteen facilities, things like social distancing in um, shops. Um, offices, you know, obviously we're being encouraged to do remote working for as long as we can. So lots of measures to help with that. But the risk assessment needs to be done individually to suit every business because they'll all be very different. And that's why they're asking employers to do this. For example, on breaks, whether it's lunch or coffee, um, if you've got a staff of 10 people and they don't work through lunchtime and their little canteen area or kitchen area is small, well, maybe only two at a time can fit into it to enable social distancing. So you can't all have your break at the same time? No, and I think as well there's other like measures like putting in place additional you know, tea and coffee stations within the workplace. Again, very practical, easy wins. Where it becomes a bit more complex is when you have people doing jobs that you know, are in overlap or close proximity. So there's a requirement then maybe to extend opening hours, extend shift patterns, so you've less people in the same place at the one time because we've found that a lot of businesses have managed this really, really well, like supermarkets and pharmacies, etc. And I suppose it's the close proximity we have found in those sectors and industries where that real issue occurs. So I think we've a lot of learnings got based on what has happened so far. And now it's kind of putting those best practice measures in place to reduce those risks and proximity being one really important one combined with the hand hygiene. So there's lots of new wash stations, both for customers, hand sanitizers and for staff as well. And you, you have to give information as well. Employers have to display information on the signs and symptoms of COVID-19. And then they have to have instructions for workers to follow if they develop any of those signs and symptoms that have been uh, highlighted for them on posters and all that. And employers have to review uh, existing sick leave policies and amend them if necessary. In other words, if two people are working close together and one of them develops the symptoms, um, you presumably have to send the other one home as well. 
Yeah, like a lot of um, the organizations now are having like a team A and a team B, or in many cases, A, B, C and D, to ensure that that close proximity will still allow business continuity. And again, have as little interaction as possible where it's practicable. Like that's easier in certain industries than others. But I suppose the good thing also is to complement all of this, there's a requirement to do staff induction training and, you know, remind people of, you know, a lot, obviously the media has done a lot of good work in terms of highlighting, you know, what is COVID-19, how it uh, spreads, how do we manage it proactively, what are the employee responsibilities and what are the employer responsibilities, Mm. and if you get symptoms, what do you do? But that training is required to be done with everybody, and I think that's a really positive step to remind everybody of the practical things that they need to do And again, I suppose, flag issues if they see them. So, you know, the employer will have done the risk assessment because they're legally obliged to do so now. But ultimately, if they don't think of some of the practical things that employees will notice when they come back to work, it's important that they flag those as well, because this is something that's going to evolve, I think, as businesses go back to what is going to be a new normal, because this is here to stay for a long time to come. And and this is where another idea that is part of the protocol uh, will help. There's got to be a worker representative. Each workplace will appoint at least one lead worker uh, charged with ensuring that COVID-19 measures are strictly adhered to in their place of work. Um, They must be trained to kind of fulfil that role. But you could see how that person would give feedback to the employer to say, for example, you know, it's not working, your idea here, maybe we could do something else. And as you say, a collaboration to improve matters. Yeah, I think that's a very positive step and a lot of uh, employers will have employee committees or, you know, these type of groups already in place or health and safety committee, etc. I think it's best to have a committee rather than just one worker representative, because obviously if that person isn't there or if you have a large workplace, you know, you'll, ha- you'll need more than one. So I think it's yeah. that or, or an overbearing employer might put pressure on the single individual that they wouldn't be able to put on a team of people, you know, maybe to slacken off a bit if they if they were critical. By the way, Caroline, what happens if you do feel your employee, your workplace is unsafe? I mean, who do you report it to and would there be inspections? Yeah, so the Health and Safety Authority have been tasked with the job of um, enforcement and ensuring that this uh, whole guideline is implemented for everybody's well-being, both staff and customers alike. And the Health and Safety Authority have the power to enforce an improvement notice on the first point of view if they see issues that haven't been you know, addressed or haven't been put in place. And I think employers are taking this really, really seriously. And the fact that we now have a roadmap of when industries are opening, we're finding that even industries that aren't opening maybe for till phase three or four or five, they're putting this in place now to, you know, be really proactive. Yeah. So again, I think that's a very good approach, but the Health and Safety Authority will be doing inspections. Um, and I think this is one of the things that, look, we're all talking about retaining staff. We're all talking about, you know, minding our staff because everybody's really stressed at the moment. The last thing we want to do is add additional stress to staff members who feel unsafe at work. But then yeah. it's got to be a practical approach as well, because there's certain things that maybe can't be done. Um, and I think it's, it's trying to reach a kind of feasible approach to do all we can to reduce the risk as much as we can. And and finally, there's to be a contact log. Employers have to keep a contact log of um, what's going on, who's in contact with whom, whether it's uh, strangers coming into the workplace or whether it's which workers have been in close contact with each other and so on and so forth. And this would be to facilitate contact tracing should an outbreak of COVID-19 occur. Absolutely. And I suppose all of these guidelines will form part of your staff COVID-19 policy. And the contact log, I suppose, will be in the form of a roster. It'll be in the form of a guideline. I would say they'll be very limited contractors or visitors or customers coming to businesses that can avoid that. But obviously, monitoring and managing that in large retail outlets, we'll have to wait and see how that's going to be done. But ultimately, I suppose, it's all about trying to facilitate as much of that contract tracing as, as you can. 
that's practical, but I think that's going okay. to be something that evolves. And uh, finally, if yours is one of the industries where the health guidance is that masks and all of that PPE should be provided, I presume the employer provides that. Yeah, I suppose like there's obviously mixed reviews in relation to face masks and temperature checks. So ultimately, I suppose the public health guidelines to do with your sector, if they say they are required, then they're PPE and you need to provide training in relation to that protective equipment. In industries that there is no requirement, ultimately, I suppose you've got to think about the pros and cons. Like one of the, I suppose, issues with temperature checks is if somebody takes an ibuprofen or a paracetamol that morning, it could mask the temperature. And also, I suppose, those that are asymptomatic it might present an issue and we don't want people thinking well I'm fine because my temperature was okay and then they don't do the social distancing or the hand hygiene or the respiratory hygiene which are the number one priority so training to go with those is key. That was Caroline McEnery speaking to Pat Kenny on Friday morning. Coming up next Professor Luke O'Neill brings us up to speed with the latest news from the world of science. Welcome back to Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty. Professor Luke O'Neill joined Pat Kenny on Wednesday morning with the very latest in the battle of science versus COVID-19. He started by explaining how around 25% of the cases in the US can be traced back to one individual. Yeah, it's amazing, Pat. This is just coming out recently and they're doing more analysis, of course. But uh, there's a place called the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Centre. It's in Seattle. They've got really elaborate technology to look at the virus in huge detail. And it turns out there's tiny differences. Say, if you have the virus and I have it, there might be a tiny difference between, it's like a fingerprint, if you like. It's the same virus, obviously. And they can now really finely map where the vi- the types of viruses around America and all over the world and then trace them back. You know what I mean? So and it looks as if it was a single individual in Seattle in January and had a fingerprint of the virus in that person's body, obviously. And that virus then spread to as many as 25% of the American cases. There's evidence now may trace to that single person. And it's very important, Pat, because it, it tells you how contagious this is. So if we ease the lockdown too much, of course, if there's a single person out there in the community and many of us haven't got immunity yet, it could start again and spread like wildfire. So it's a very important study in terms of how contagious this virus is. And they've been able to look at different social gatherings and look at precisely who caught it and really from whom, without naming names, of course. Well, it's amazing. I mean, well, first of all, this specific virus, the fingerprint, if you like, they found it in Australia. They found it on, on one of the cruise ships from this single person in Seattle. You know, so it's incredible how the, the fine mapping of the different types of viruses have revealed this. And then, yeah, you're right. There was one amazing study where there was a barn dance in a place called Linwood, uh, which is near Seattle. This begins in Seattle, of course, this first case. And it was a barn dance in Linwood, and they found that three out of 48 people got infected that night at that barn dance. That's a high rate of infection. There was a big party in downtown Seattle, maybe a month after this case, and 40% of the people at that party became infected or tested positive. So again, this reveals a gathering of people. If someone is infectious in the room, it could spread to about 10, 15, 20% of the people in that room. So again, this reveals how, how, how contagious this virus is. Yeah, I mean, the mechanism of transmission, whether it was, you know, some person using um, the the door handle to the the restroom or whether it was just the, you know, bopping and hopping and breathing heavily and just creating an atmosphere laden with COVID-19 aerosol. Yeah, and remember, there was no mitigation happening in this situation. It's early days during the infection. There was no social distancing. There was no hygiene, you know. So I feel like this is the worst case scenario if we don't adopt all these measures. Again, emphasising how important it is to adopt the hand washing and the, you know, the old uh, social, all those guidelines still apply. That wasn't happening and that's why it spread so quickly. Now, we've other topics, but before we move on, there seems to be something of a U-turn by the CMO and his colleagues and NFET on masks which I'm sure you will find gratifying. At last, Pat, at last. I was wondering what we would do if it didn't happen. Are we supposed to bang on drums, you know, whatever it is to to get the message across? But at last, they're now changing their position, it seems. Let's wait for the final statement, by the way, and the guidelines. Now, now they're right to be cautious in a sense, but because, you know, you've got to wear the mask properly. They're going to hopefully give clear guidelines as to how masks should be worn and the types of masks. Remember, these aren't the, the, the masks that our healthcare workers should wear. A cotton mask does the job just as nicely as we've discussed before. So so it's, it's great news, really, in a sense, because we all agree this is another way. I mean, it's not, it's not the only way, of course. You've got to keep doing everything else as well. Why not add this into our, you know, set of weapons yeah. against this virus. So it's really good news. This. 
It was very interesting listening to Professor Gabriel Scali this morning on uh, The Breakfast Show when he was saying, you know, he grew up in Northern Ireland through the Troubles and he has an aversion to masks, you know, because of the hooded men and all the rest of it. But he said when he's out and about, he will be wearing a mask. And as he put it, it can't do any harm, can it? No, so, no. I heard him. I heard him, Pat. I was delighted to hear. Now, he was a bit slightly reluctant. You still, did you hear that tiny reluctance in his voice? But uh, yeah. but still, his bottom line is wear a mask. And it's fantastic that Gabriel is saying this as well. So everybody's rode in behind this now, which is tremendous. Now, you may have heard that debate yesterday where um, the Royal College of Physicians were calling for all the smoking areas and pubs to be rendered non-smoking uh, when uh, pubs eventually open up for business so that, you know, families and children can use these areas uh, and whether or not they would ever become smoking areas again is a, a moot point. But it brings me to the topic of nicotine because we mentioned it yesterday, but there is some sort of suggestion that nicotine itself, not smoke, but nicotine might be protective in some way against COVID-19. Yeah, this is a good example, Pat, of what looks good. And when you dig in and you look at the science behind it, you go, well, hang on a minute, it's not as clear cut. And remember, as, as we've discussed before, there's a huge amount of stuff being published that's rubbish out there now. It's almost as if there's, you know, everybody wants to get their name out there and so on. But this study's interesting. It was in France. And they noticed that uh, only a small percentage of people in the ICUs were smokers with this disease. So it was only 4.4%, for instance, in one study were smokers, you see, and the rest weren't. And that suggested that smoking was somewhere protective because you might expect to see lots of smokers turning up in the ICU if smoking was a risk factor, you see. Now, of course, smoking can be a risk factor because it damages the lungs, things like COPD, Mm. which is, is a risk factor for this disease. And yet here was people with severe disease, only a small percent were smokers. And that suggested there was some protective effect. And then the second thing is that there was some evidence nicotine might affect ACE2. Now, ACE2 is the protein in your lungs that the virus locks onto to get inside lung cells. And there was some evidence, at least there was a suggestion, nicotine might block that. Now, if this was the case, it'd be tremendous because you could use nicotine as a drug. And in fact, there's now trials happening with nicotine patches, for instance, that's been provoked by these studies. But when they dug into it a bit, they realized that many of the people were healthcare workers anyway, because obviously healthcare workers have higher incidence and they're inclined not to smoke. So there was kind of a bias in the population. That was one thing. And then guess what, Pat? They think people lied anyway to their doctors when they asked them, are you a smoker? Oh, no, I'm not. You know, so, so in other words, uh-huh. the non-smokers were slightly overrepresented in the group, you see. So, again, the usual pinch of salt, I guess, informs us. But still, the number but, but, holds up. You know, yeah, that, that, but they, are, um, they are testing it now. They are testing it with, you know, genuine smokers, non-smokers with they nicotine are. patches. I, I was just wondering whether it was a bit like um, smokers who claim never to get a cold. I mean, they might have a smoker's cough, but they never get a cold. And part of the reason was that the old uh, cold virus, which is also coronavirus, couldn't get through the tar in their lungs. You know, yeah, yeah exa- exactly. <laughs> it just yeah, couldn't make it. There are, there, are, there are studies showing smoking is good. For, and I hate to say this to people listening in, they might start smoking, but there's some things that smoking protects. It. Inflammatory bowel disease is one, strangely. You get less of that in smokers too. So there's something going on there. You know, it doesn't justify smoking. The, the, the negatives far outweigh the positives here, by the way. But what's good about this, Patty, the, 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 the interesting thing is they're trying nicotine now. You never know. Nicotine, remember, is a little drug, <laughs> like any other drug in a way. Yeah. So if it does lock onto ACE2 and stops the virus getting in, now you could think about a nicotine patch as a possible therapy. So yet again, we'll wait and see what happens next. So it's intriguing, isn't it, that smoking's come up as a, as a somewhat positive thing, as it were. Now, testing was also in the news and how inadequate our testing regime is. And, um, you know, looking at the reports and listening to Killian de Gascon, you know, computers don't talk to computers, getting IDs on individuals who've been tested uh, and so on and so forth. And, you know, we have what I think the head of the HSE described as a wartime uh, testing regime at the moment. And we have to design one that's more permanent for the next pandemic that comes along and that will be fit for purpose. But one of the issues is getting a quick result. You know, there's no point in getting a result six days later when you've infected another 100 people if you're positive. So, a one-minute test. Tell me more. Well, again, but it's incredible, as we've been discussing a few times, the rate of discovery in this area is massive. And testing is the number one thing, as we've discussed, and you've got to get that right. And it's not trivial, Pat, testing. And let's never forget the challenge here. To test 100,000 people a day or whatever they're aiming for in the US, it's even more. It's not easy. There's logistical issues and so on. So so it's not, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a simple thing in a way. It's logistically all these demands on you. But now an Israeli company are claiming a one-minute test 
Can you believe it? And, and they're a very reputable crowd. You see these things and you wonder, is there any, you know, are they any good? They're called mm. Centech Medical. And they've just announced they may have a one minute test. And what's incredible is it's based on like a breathalyzer type system, because it turns out if you have the virus in your body, you make certain chemicals because the virus is there. And lo and behold, this machine can detect these chemicals. It's got a very sensitive machine, can test thousands of different chemicals in your breath. They can see a signature in those sets of chemicals that say you've got COVID-19. And it's literally like a breathalyzer. You blow into it and it comes up as a positive or negative. Now, if, if this works, that will revolutionize things because instead of just taking your temperature, which is one thing we're doing more and more, of course, back in the workplace yeah. and so on. They're talking about temperature. This could be your way within a minute to see if you're positive or negative for the virus. So that would be that would be yeah, a real addition, uh, wouldn't it? So that would be very simple for passengers getting on aircraft, because yesterday when Ryanair announced uh, their uh, new protocols for flying, one of them is if you turn up at the airport and you've got a temperature, sorry, you go home, you don't get on the flight. Uh, so you leave your four-year-old yeah. home alone while the rest of you go off on halls. Yeah. No. Uh, but but the, the thing is that someone texted in very quickly and said, if you have a bit of a temperature going to the airport, just take paracetamol and temporarily exactly. your temp will go down and on you get. That's why the temperature is not great. Pat, now, it is reasonable to take people's temperature if it's, if it's high, you know, and people are sick and so on. But you're right that there's ways around this. You can just take a, 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 a drug like paracetamol, bring your temperature down. So temperature measurement is seen as part of the way to this, but not ideal. This is a different thing altogether, isn't it? It's a really hopefully accurate test that say you have the virus on board. And very importantly, Pat, it worked in asymptomatic patients as well. And of course, asymptomatic patients won't have a temperature and yet they're infectious, you see. So it's a real, if yeah. this is true, it's a real add on then because you know, everybody could be tested. You'll see this very complex chemical pattern in the breath that says you have COVID-19. You should go home immediately or whatever the instruction might be. So we see this as an important advance. Do we have any idea what it'll cost? Um, because, you know, if everyone could afford one at home um, or every workplace could have one of these machines and you have a little tube just like they do for the the, the, the Garda breathalyzer, uh, just blow in. The only thing that's discarded is the tube and the machine keeps working away. So is it going to be expensive? Yeah, they're asking that very question. I mean, in some ways, if it works and it's built to scale, if everybody gets one, it'll be cheap, obviously, won't it? They're looking at that sort of question as we speak. It is expensive at the moment. It's like it's obviously sort of in, in development. And this is this is a very sensitive machine that can measure, you know, several chemicals simultaneously with the breathalyzer. You're just measuring ethanol, you know, so that's a bit simpler. But certainly they're looking at that to see if they can scale it up and make it available widely. Now, one of the questions from uh, a texter here, Maggie Kerens, uh, could you ask Luke O'Neill about the study done in Trinity, his own college, showing the benefit of vitamin D in those testing positive for COVID-19? Does he feel we should all take a supplement or will fortified milk suffice? We use it here all the time. Our CF, cystic fibrosis dietitian, recommends it for people with cystic fibrosis. Uh, that's from Maggie. Uh, you saw that study. I did. Um, it's a statistical one. Yeah, that's what Roseanne Kenny, yeah, is a good colleague of mine. She's yeah. fantastic on all kinds of studies with, with the ageing. She leads that centre, that superb effort to do with ageing anyway. But yeah, they've spotted this correlation, basically. Now, we knew already, Pat, that vitamin D is really good for your immune system. That's been known for at least 20, 25 years now. You know, vitamin D was originally a bone thing that has strengthened your bones. And vitamin D deficiency meant rickets, donkeys years ago, of course, because you couldn't build the bone structure. But then about 20 years ago, immunologists realised, well, hang on a minute, this is a super vitamin to boost our immune response or keep our immune response healthy. Cells called natural killer cells, for instance, that fight viruses, they love vitamin D, certain T cells. So we knew a lot about that already. So it was interesting to see this correlation because it would hold up with our knowledge of the immune system. Now, whether you need to take huge amounts is the next question. Uh, I think at the moment, just fortified foods suffice you know and in fact natural food stuffs that contain vitamin D like like fish yes. for instance they they they, they allegedly yeah. have enough it, in it, it. But, that, but that's now being studied it's interesting reading um reading uh, dr kenny's study um it, it turns out that people in the northern part of europe uh, have more vitamin d and people in the southern part where they get loads of sunshine are deficient in vitamin d and you, you wonder why and it turns out that people in the northern part eat loads of supplements and they're fine. Yeah. And the people yeah, who are exactly. depending on the Mediterranean diet with all the fish don't have enough. So, you know, look at uh, what's happened in Spain with their rate of uh, COVID-19. So you, you they got need the more vitamin D. 
you've got the dreaded confounding variables there as well, though, Pat. There could be some other reason for that. You see that you can't, that isn't to do with vitamin D at all. But yeah. but certainly, that if that if that held up, that would suggest you won't get enough from a regular diet, and you need to supplement to get even more. Maybe you need extra amounts to fight this particular vicious virus. In other words, regular vitamin D in a normal diet will help you fight most infections. This one might especially need high vitamin D levels. And remember, it's a water soluble or it's um, a fat soluble vitamin which means it can persist in your body. There was never any point in taking huge amounts of vitamin C. That was the other big one that was often mentioned because that's water soluble and you just wee it out. It goes through your urine. Vitamin D is different. It's fat soluble. So a lot, lots of it will build up in your tissues and may provide an extra benefit. You never know. Now, uh, what about antibodies and people who have been infected, whether, anti, uh, whether asymptomatic or not? What is the science telling us about the presence of antibodies? Yeah, a very, again, Pat, it's amazing every day, isn't it? And you and I have discussed this. I've never seen a rate of discovery like this. I mean, every day a new publication or two comes out that's compelling. Let's put it that way. And about, a, about I think it was last Friday, this one came out, a really good assessment of who has antibodies and who hasn't. It was done in New York, in Mount Sinai. What they'd done was they'd taken 15,000 people who had recovered from this virus and they want to use their blood now as a source of antibodies. And as you may remember, that's a possible therapy, because if you have fought the virus, your immune system's made loads of antibodies that are protective. You should be able to give those antibodies to someone else and protect them. It's called convalescent plasma. So a lot of work going on in this area to see if it will work or not. 15,000 patients were taken and they assessed them for antibodies, of course. Now, they, they homed in on 1,300 patients because to measure antibodies accurately with real precision isn't, isn't easy. You know, you need a very sophisticated sort of technique. It's not done in hospitals, for instance. You won't do it with a dipstick at home. So they didn't have a huge number of patients. Initially, they just took 1,300 patients. And to their delight, Pat, the vast majority had very high levels of antibodies. And that, was, that was the first thing. You might think we knew that already, but there had been evidence that there was variation in the amount of antibodies between people. Let's say milder disease would have less, more severities might have more. When do you measure the antibody? Because it takes time for antibodies to build up. And really, incredibly, and they're calling this a really important finding, the vast majority had, had sufficient antibodies that would allow you to protect against the virus. And that was the very important thing. And we like it because it's a really accurate study. The second thing is, but they, they got the timing of it. You need to wake about three weeks from when it starts to measure the antibodies. They take time to build up. And some of the studies had failed because they took a sample too early, you know. So now we know maybe three weeks after, in fact, that's when you measure the antibodies. That's the first and another finding from this study. So they've got a really hand, good handle now on antibody measurement. And, and what was very nice about that the ones with mild disease, they had antibodies as well, which was something that we wondered about, you know. Yeah. And do they have them in sufficient quantities to um, grant whatever temporary or permanent immunity you get from uh, the coronavirus? They do. That's the view. And what they did next then was they took the antibodies and checked if they were neutralizing. That's a very important thing. Just because you have antibodies doesn't mean that they're blocking the virus, strange as it may seem. But antibodies do other things as well in the immune system. They don't just lock onto the virus and block it. So, so there was a concern that maybe they have high antibodies, but those antibodies wouldn't be neutralizing. They wouldn't neutralize the virus. And lo and behold, very nicely, most of these people are neutralizing antibodies. And they could see a dose-dependent effect, which means that the more antibody you had in your blood, the more neutralizing you could see. And that tells you that antibodies can actually neutralize. And that was a good finding as well. And remember now, they, they, they'd known already that lots of people who'd given blood and they gave that convalescent plasma to people, it did seem to work a bit in patients. So we kind of knew that there was neutralizing antibodies there. But yeah. this systematic study certainly confirms that. The other thing that was amazing, Pat, was they reckon this, these people were representative of all of New York, if you know what I mean, statistically. So there was a very high level of people or whatever, and then they could study them in terms of being uh, overall representative. And they think as many as 20% 20, 20 of New Yorkers might have antibodies. Isn't that incredible? So one in five that people in New York may have been infected. And that's a really interesting number because that means you're moving towards a good coverage now of immunity in the population. That was another good positive that came out of that study. Um, the death toll in the United States is around 82,000 people. But um, the suggestion was last evening, I saw it on CNN, that the actual death toll could be 50% higher because they're not counting everybody. They're not counting people who died at home. Not every nursing home death is uh, being counted and, and so on. Uh, so it'll be a while before we get an absolute number from the United yeah. States, who, which seemed on the face of bald statistics to be doing better than us, uh, just in, in yeah. numerical terms. 
Exactly. Yeah, um, but again, the, the numbers are never accurate enough, Pat, really. I mean, the, these numbers are the best we have to go on. This will all shake down in the next six, 12 months. We'll see how vicious this virus has been. And all it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy. These numbers just keep going up, don't they? We, we, people are realising how dangerous this virus is. A question from a listener, which I passed on to you. It's about those people who possess G6PD and how that oh, yes, might affect yeah. their susceptibility to COVID-19. That was a fascination. Well, I wasn't aware of that until you drew my attention to it. So there's a couple of questions going on there in the background. We know that certain ethnic minorities are more susceptible in a way, or at least have more severe disease, you see. And the big question is, why would that be? Now, one reason could be because they've got other diseases, they've higher blood pressure or whatever it might be that give them an extra risk, I guess. But it could be genetic. And that very thing you've mentioned, that that's more prominent in, in the black community. And maybe now that makes them more susceptible. And we'd like to know more about that because that might give us a clue as to therapies. And that G6PD, for instance, if that was a, a factor, causing severe disease in that community, you might design a drug to block that and it'd be especially beneficial in that group. So that was a that's a useful finding if it, if it pans out. There's several genes in the mix, by the way, that people are looking at that are more prominent in some populations that are more severely affected. And again, that's going to give us clues as to how to, what we call stratify the medicines eventually to treat people. The second thing that was important there was if you carry that variant, chloroquine is more toxic in those people. There's a side effect of that drug. And this often happens, by the way. Some people are hypersensitive to certain drugs because they've got a certain genetic background and that would warn you not to use hydroxychloroquine in that population that was an important part of that study actually all right uh, there are a few questions uh, luke which you may or may not be able to answer i'll, I'll throw them at you quickly if uh, vape droplets that are blown around you know people who are vaping rather than smoking could they carry the virus that's a good question yeah people haven't looked at that yet and, and it wouldn't be too difficult to measure that they're, they're very good now at capturing these droplets remember that's another example of the technology moving on and seeing if they're infectious because you can capture them and then put them on cells in culture in your lab you can, we, in my lab at the moment we're growing lung cells if you can believe it so you can culture lung cells see if you can infect them with a the virus and then see if the, those actual droplets are infectious or not that wouldn't be difficult to do nobody's done that yet as far as i'm aware uh, what does Luke think of the proposed COVID saliva detection test versus the nasopharyngeal swab? That's from Neve in Dublin. We're praying for that one, Pat, because anybody who's had this nasal swab is very uncomfortable and it's very invasive because you stick a swab up the nose at the back of the nose. Uh, and there is evidence now you can pick up the virus and saliva. That would be a big advance, wouldn't it? Because, again, you just spit you just spit into a tube and that could be the source of it. Secondly, for antibodies, you can pick up some antibodies in IgA is an antibody you pick up in saliva and you don't have to take a blood sample. So this is all about optimising the testing you see. I mean, the talk about this, Pat, there's thousands of people trying to optimise all this at the moment. The Israeli example I gave earlier is just one, you see, to improve testing. If you can do a saliva test, that's much more straightforward. And again, it's moving in that direction. Um, how do you know when someone's over COVID-19 and can, can no longer infect somebody else? That's from Liz, because we, we know about the asymptomatic people at the beginning of the whole process. But at the end, when you still are feeling miserable, but you might test negative for COVID-19, you know, people are wondering, could they infect you? Yeah, well, that's the, that's the other question. And again, we're getting more information all the time. It's a two-week course, this disease, in most people. So by the time you get to two weeks from, from being infected, now, of course, the symptoms are starting day five, six. So you can work back to that point, I suppose, and then you get to two weeks eventually. Uh, that that seems to be the time when the virus is beaten and, and you shouldn't be infectious after two weeks. They are pushing it out slightly, maybe to three weeks, just to be on the safe side, to have someone who will definitely not infect those. And another thing the New York study did, Pat, was they measured the virus and all those people and they did detect viral particles if a good few weeks after their infection it doesn't mean those particles are infectious by the way little remnants of virus and that was mm. important because we kept worrying all oh, people are getting reinfected they weren't like little bits of viral fragments not not the actual intact virus did you know pat you can test uh, you can measure measles virus fragments six months after the measles is gone so we knew these little bits of virus can can still hang around, but they're not infectious. And very importantly, they, they aren't infectious. So so we do think three weeks is probably sensible now. There may shift to three weeks. Just watch what happens next. Like it's still two weeks is the, is the course that we now view it. But it could move to three and then you're safe after the three weeks. You won't infect other people. OK, any difference in the susceptibility of people with different blood groups uh, to the disease? I've read something about those with A positive, which is what I am, uh, being more susceptible, but... Uh, read no more than that. Yeah, no, that again, Pat, as, as you mentioned last week, didn't we? It's moving to the blood a lot because these strains coagulation 
blood clotting is happening and these microvascular clots are becoming a big focus for all kinds of reasons. Uh, they happen in a certain percent of patients and they can be troublesome. So the doctors can give anticoagulants now and other bits of the blood might be relevant. And there is that association. What I'd like to see is a mechanism there. I'm obsessed in, as a biochemist originally. Why would that be? Why would that blood group protect and the other one not? Is it because the virus binds to it or there's something going on there? So you'd like to see a bit more on that to con well first of all to confirm that it's important it could just be an association you see that may not be ca causative is there this big cause causation correlation thing we talk about a lot so it's interesting certainly and it needs more work and the final thing is uh, the suggestion that the virus might burn out trump is one of those who made that suggestion but the flu tends to vanish uh, not entirely in the summer but by and large diminish dramatically yeah. Um, I mean, what is happening when it's burning out? Is it simply that if enough people have the vaccine or enough people have been infected that basically it has nowhere to go? Yeah, but if, you, if, if this was, let's say it was a thousand years ago, Pat, we know, we know science or technology with this at all. What this virus would do is it would kill the vulnerable, tragically. They would all die off. And the ones left behind are resistant. And then the virus goes away because it's got nowhere to hide. In other words, all the immunity is now in the population. That's happened in mi millions of years. This has been driving evolution in many ways. Now, with, with, with most in the 20th century, say, what's inclined to happen is it does burn out in the sense that the or naught goes below one. Remember this famous or naught thing? Mm -hmm. So if, if, if the or naught's two, that means one person infects two, each of them infect two, and it rapidly spreads. The American example we gave, one person then gone to affect tens of thousands. So that, that's the, if the or is above one. If it's below one, let's say it's 0.9, that means 10 people infect nine, nine infect eight, eight infect seven, and gradually it goes away, just begins to ramp down. There'll always be tiny pockets though somewhere, and it comes back a little bit, is the fear, you see. But So that's what burning out kind of means. Now, of course, New Zealand, did you see, Pat, New Zealand are claiming to have beaten it. Did you see that last night? Yes. They, they said they've, they've suppressed it completely. Now, that would mean there's no virus in that population at all, and that means it's now gone. Is that true? I guess time will tell. And certainly with, with medicines, with vaccines and you know antivirals and all the measures we're observing, you could see a situation where it's completely gone. Wouldn't that be great? We eventually got rid of smallpox, remember, from the from Earth with a, with a vaccine. It was completely eliminated with, with the vaccine. So to, to, to achieve true burnout or true elimination, you need a vaccine. And the smallpox experience tells us that. That was Professor Luke O'Neill of Trinity College Dublin speaking with Pat Kenny on Wednesday morning. Welcome back to Weekly Digest on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty. Earlier this week, Ivan spoke to Paul Reed, Chief Executive of the HSE, about some of his key concerns relating to the treatment of patients with non-COVID illnesses. The biggest issue of concern to me and our listeners is the non-COVID care. I think the number one trend on Twitter, and not that the health service should be run by Twitter, is hashtag cancel the contract. Stephen Donnelly, the Fianna Fáil spokesperson, has today said, uh, bar for 400 beds, we should uh, cancel the private hospital contract. I, I spoke to you this about tweaking the contract for the concerns. The key issue here, Paul, is this. Yesterday, the NHS came out and said, Hold on a second. The non-COVID waiting list for both outpatient and inpatient is beyond our capacity to resolve. I'm putting it to you, we had an election and we had over 500,000 people on outpatient and inpatient waiting lists. That, that That's just the, where we were before the 1st of March. Now, so you've had all the cancelled appointments, you've all the people who stay away, 10,000 a week, and you've uh, uh, all this coming at you. I have to put it to you, I have to put it to you, that the, the sensible thing to do now is at least those that were there with private health insurance, those private patients, that they could resume their work with their doctors and their beds and so on. Is it time to do a U-turn on cancelling this contract so that the non-COVID care in the private setting could continue? Well, can I take the last bit of your question first in terms of the non-COVID care? We are really anxious that we do get back to non-COVID care. Indeed, we have a media campaign this week urging people who have clinical need you know, to make sure they go to their GP, come to our emergency departments uh, and make sure that their care, they get the care they need. Uh, and that's really key for us. Now, in saying that, uh, we have to be very careful in terms of what happens next. Uh, thankfully, we've seen a suppression of the disease by the restrictions and the public uh, buy-in and the public sacrifices. 
But nobody knows next, and you'll hear Mike Ryan talking about this quite a lot from WHO, nobody knows next, as restrictions are lifted, uh, how the disease will perform in the community. And we could face, and this is very well known, we've seen it from other European countries, we could face another surge. So specifically to this first part of your question, the reason why the agreement was made with the private hospital groups was we were looking at, and every country was looking at what was happening across Europe, with a major surge. And, and we accept that was done in good faith at the time, but now we're in a different yeah. place. So now what we need to get back to are non-COVID services and the use of the private hospital groups will play a part in that because we cannot reduce, we have to keep our hospital system, our acute hospital system, at about 80% capacity level. And you know, because you've reported this well in the past, we would normally operate at about 95% on a normal day and well over 100% in winter, probably 110%. We cannot let that happen. We have to have capacity to meet anything potential. We're not out of COVID. Uh, we're not out of the impacts of this disease. So we have to go back to our non-COVID services in a very different way. And they will be less efficient because we can't have the volume of people, for example, in our waiting rooms for various outpatients arrangements. So it's a very different now way we have to look at the non-COVID services in protecting people against COVID. So I know there's a sense from people, you know, an understandable sense, well, it's back to, you know, back to services as, as usual. For us, it can't be. We have to protect the public and but, get back to But you see, you see, people can follow the public health advice and, and do all they can to avoid COVID. And they have a 90 plus percent chance of surviving COVID. If you have bladder cancer, lung cancer, many other types of cancer, uh, the, the odds are not as good. And, and you, we all know, Paul, that the key issue is early diagnosis and early treatment. I put it to you that if you ring up any hospital in this country, there are serious backlogs emerging in every aspect of oncology care. And that this is a looming certain crisis, actually not just in Ireland, but across Europe and the world. And, and we need a roadmap to deal with this. And I'm not hearing that there is one. Yeah, and just, just to count behind exactly what you said so we've set our chief clinical officer has set with us three priorities for us now in terms of getting back to non-covid care priority number one is really getting back to ensure people come forward for uh, cancer treatment cardiology treatment priority number two is for those time dependent surgeries to make sure that we get them back and we add people back to our services there is a reluctance on the public to come forward as well we've seen that from surveys that's priority number two and then priority number three is to get some of the regular procedures which we would normally work in conjunction with the ntpf through and rolling again now the private hospital groups and the public hospital system is all part of that process and we will utilize what we have in terms of the engagement that we have with the private hospital group as part of those three priorities. So is it your intention to renew after the three months are up the contract again? Well, the contract as it was set out was a three-month contract that can roll up to five months uh, and the three months comes up. So what would you be recommending on that? I, I think it, from my perspective, we will work through this with our boards in the coming weeks and we'll work it through with the department and government. From my perspective, I'm extremely cautious about how we don't know what happens next about the impact of COVID. And nobody will thank us if we ended up with a hospital system now fully overloaded and not in a position coming into, you know, coming into a potential other performance of a disease that we just don't know. But that ultimately is a decision that we'll make, you know, we'll have to make soon if it's extended uh, or we just, um, you know, stop it at a point in time. But I have to say, uh, it's, it's a high risk to reduce the capacity of our hospital system at this point in time. Finally, uh, the childcare thing sort of collapsed. I know it was another department, but really the obligation is on an employer to provide childcare in these extremist circumstances, given that the Department of Children can't do it. Have you any plans to help some of your staff get back to work uh, through any childcare proposals of your own? Well, I think we've been what I would call a very caring employer in this one because I've been very conscious from the start to make sure we get our healthcare workers to work and there's a number of ways we've done try to do that. Firstly, we have been very flexible as possible as we can with the rosters and the rostering arrangements. Now, thankfully, the demands on that, you know, with the performance of the disease should re- relax further so we can give further flexibility. 
Secondly, we have been where people cannot get to work and they just can't get to see what other work in any circumstances we can get to those, pe- those people at home. Thirdly, we've been calling out on private organisations and other state agencies where the healthcare worker is there to try to get the healthcare worker to work and let the other partner or spouse or husband or wife uh, look after young children. So that's the flexibility we've already put in place. Unfortunately, with the arrangement you've said that, that we would have liked to see come true, uh, it hasn't. Now, you know, I can actually understand this is a very difficult one from a public health perspective in terms of people's concerns. Uh, and people going to houses. So it is a really difficult one, but we'll continue to be as flexible to make sure that we can get our healthcare workers to work. That was Paul Reid, Chief Executive of the HSE, speaking with Ivan earlier this week. On Thursday morning, eight-year-old Schieffer Duggan told Shane Coleman of News Talk Breakfast how she's filling her time during lockdown and the incredible things she's doing to raise money for a charity. Morning. How are you doing? How are you, how are you and all your family? I'm good. Yeah, good, good. And and like, how are you? How are you managing to to you're you're keeping entertained? I know it's hard. We're all kind of stuck at home. We're all doing the right thing, staying at home. How how are you filling your day? What kind of things are you getting up to? Um, I'm going out for walks with my dogs. Um, I'm doing gymnastics and reading. Well, they're three brilliant things to do. And gymnastics is great, and going for a walk with the dog, uh, that keeps you really fit. What what are your dogs' names? Cindy and Jasper. Oh, lovely. Okay, okay. Now, you, you, I'm sure you were disappointed. Uh, I have a little girl in, in sixth class. I know she was really disappointed that lots of things she had planned for sixth class were cancelled. I'm sure you were very disappointed about your first communion being uh, postponed. Yeah. But you, you've decided to make the best of things, which is really, really good. T- tell us what you have, what, tell us what you're proposing to do. I've decided to cut my hair for charity and I'm also going to raise money for the doctors and nurses. Oh, that's really nice. And and uh, the you you uh, you're going to donate to a charity to make wigs for for children with cancer as well. Yeah, that is so kind of you. What what gave you the idea of doing that? Um. Well, I've know I know the doctors um and nurses have been doing have been working really hard um especially now. Um, and as well, I've donated my hair two other times, so I kind of do that every a lot of the time. So, yeah. Uh, it's a it's a really really nice thing to do, and and so kind of you to be thinking of other people uh, at this time, and not and not just thinking of yourself. Um, tell us if people want to help out and and help with the with the work you're doing for charity, they can they can donate, can't they? Yeah. Will I tell them or do you want to tell them how, how they donate? Do you do you remember the... Um, it's GoFundMe, isn't it? GoFundMe.com? Yeah. Forward slash Shifra's yeah. hyphen hair hyphen donation. GoFundMe.com forward slash Shifra's hash uh, hair uh, hyphen donation. Is that um, Have I got that right? Yeah. Okay, that's good. Thank God for that. Tell me this. Who are you, uh, who are you isolating with at home? Who's at home with you? Um, my mum, my dad and my two brothers. Okay. And are your brothers older or younger than you? Um, I have a younger brother and an older brother. Okay. Well, I, I'm sure you're a brilliant sister and uh, and a brilliant uh, daughter as well. Shifa, it was really lovely talking to you this morning and, and well done. I think it's it's just fabulous uh, that, that you're doing that and, and hopefully uh, you will definitely have your, your, your day out in the future as well. Thanks so much for, for talking to us this morning and, and take care. That was eight-year-old Schieffer Duggan speaking to News Talk Breakfast on Thursday morning. Well, next week we'll see how the testing capacity of 15,000 tests a day every day will work and what impact it will have on the overall number of confirmed cases each day. As always, we'll continue to bring you updates as they happen on News Talk, but be sure to subscribe to this podcast on the Go Loud app or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also submit your questions or comments to COVID questions at newstalk.com. For me, Shane Beatty, until next week, bye bye and take care.